believe it or not, the first tele-evangelist was a Catholic archbishop. At least that's what Time Magazine called Archbishop Fulton Sheen. Archbishop Fulton Sheen died in the year 1979 at the age of 84. And many of you who are a little older know that name quite well, or many of you that are a little bit younger as well, if you read some of his 73 books that he wrote or listened to some of the things that he recorded during his own lifetime. He was one of the first to start pioneering uh, faith into the radio and then on TV. He was the first one to have a, a TV recorded, a, a religious service recorded on TV. And he, uh, at the height of the popularity of the shows that he was doing, you've heard of it, called Life is Worth Living, uh, 30 million people were tuning in every Tuesday night at 8 p.m. Uh, to listen to what Archbishop Fulton Sheen had to say. In one show in 1974, he gave a very prophetic an episode that night, and he talked about this. He said, first of all, we are at the end of Christendom. Not Christianity, not the church. Remember what I am saying. I'd like to share a little bit more about what he said in that uh, broadcast that night. He talked about the fourth age of the church in which we're living And he defined Christendom as the economic, political, and social life as inspired by Christian principles. That is ending, he said. We've seen it die. Look at the symptoms. The breakup of the family, divorce, abortion, immorality, and general dishonesty. He went on to point out that of 22 civilizations that have existed since the foundation of the world, 19 of those have decayed and rotted from the inside out. And he said, we live in it from day to day. We don't see it. We don't see the decline. We take it for granted. We get used to things and almost accept them as the rule. The press that we read, the television that we see, is in no instance inspired by Christian principles. As a matter of fact, there is, on the part of many of us, a tendency to go down to meet the world, not to lift the world up. We are afraid of being unpopular, so we go with the mob. That was 46 years ago. He pointed out that we're living in the fourth 500-year period of the church, And the church, he said, goes as Christ goes. There's this way that the church dies and then comes back to life. As the Holy Spirit of God and the Father and the Son breathe new life into the church through the examples of the saints. He pointed out that the church declined in the first 500-year period when Rome fell. But then there were saints like Augustine and Augustine of Canterbury and Patrick who went to Ireland. And the missionary fervor revived it in the 6th, 7th, 8th centuries. Then he pointed out in the, around the year 1000, the Muslim invasions, the split of the church in East and West. Again, there was new life in Francis and Dominic. And then around the 1500s, the Reformation calamity. The church was rotten in her priests and her nuns. They were defecting one after another. And after that, the church came to life again through saints like Charles Borromeo and Teresa of Avila. And he said, and now we're in the fourth period and we're rotting. We're spoiled. No great zeal, no great learning, no great fire. Yet there's hope, because anyone who knows history is not particularly disturbed. He pointed out that the enemies in each period were a little bit different. The enemy in the first 500-year period was false doctrine about Jesus. Truly divine, fully divine, fully man. And that falsity, that attack, allowed for the Muslim heresy to start to spring up. Muslim Islam is a heresy about Jesus. The second way, we saw an attack on the head of the church, and then the split of the church, where the Eastern Church doesn't recognize the Pope as head of the church that Christ founded. 
The third uh, era of the church taught an attack on the mystical body of Christ. As I said, priests and nuns, a crisis of holiness. And then the reformers, who he said, almost always reform the wrong things. And they began reforming the faith, and there was nothing wrong with the faith. It was the morals that needed reforming. It's not renewal. It's really a moral reformation that is needed in our age, too. Our enemy today, he said, our enemy today is the world, the spirit of the world. Today we have to conform to the world or we're branded. Our Lord said, I have taken you out of the world. Archbishop said, but we say, no, we have to win the world, and to win the world, you have to be one with it. And this is the easiest kind of way to fall off the log. I guess that was a saying back then. Worldliness. It's so simple, and it can be justified for a thousand reasons. Namely, the Vatican Council said we have to go into the world, indeed, but not to be the world, which is quite a different matter. So this is our attack today. Yet he was full of hope and joy, and for this reason... The answer is, these are great and wonderful days in which to live. I thank God that I can live in these days because these are days of testing. The three decades before his talk, he pointed out, the atmosphere is Christian, morals were Christian. There is no great problem in adapting ourselves to a Christian society. But now when everything is turned around, these are days when the masks have got to come off and we reveal ourselves just as we really are. Now, side note, I'm not making any commentary about the mass or wearing for corona. This is a metaphor, so we, it's a purely a metaphor, but, but he went on to say again, today the current is against us, and today the mood of the world is, go with the world, go with the spirit. Listen, dead bodies float downstream. Only live bodies resist the current. And so the good Lord is testing us. He pointed out that Biblically, biblically, when the Israelites were in the desert wandering around, and they were about to enter the promised land, they sent scouts ahead. And the majority of the report of the scouts was one of negative, not trusting God. Oh, we can't take it. The land is full of these giants. Uh, even though it's full of milk and honey, we can't possibly do it. Only two, a minority, Caleb and Joshua, believed in the Lord's promises. And they were the only two that got to go into the promised land from that scouting troop. He foresaw a time, prophetically, when the church might be a minority faithful report, when it might be a minority of priests that are faithful, a minority of nuns that are faithful, a minority of you all as laity that are faithful, and yet dynamic, and full of trust in God's plan. But even in the midst of trials, we resist the spirit of worldliness. And then he proposed this, he said this, and it stunned everybody. He said, the answer is violence. But not violence in the sense you might think, of out there, you know, taking up a sword against somebody else. No, and this is the last quote I'll share from him. He said, it's a sword that's thrust against ourselves, cutting out the seven pallbearers of the soul, pride and covetousness and lust and anger, envy, gluttony and sloth. And we've given up the sword. Someone else has taken it up and we have to restore it. Then we'll get peace. And this haunting line. And peace is never corporate. It's never social until it's first personal. That's the example that the saints give us. Only will there be peace around us in the world when we've truly taken up the sword and done the battle against evil in our own hearts and minds. That's his call. And his solution was he encouraged all the faithful 
to take an hour of prayer each day. The saintly bishop, he saw something. And it's those that stay faithful to that whole, that hour of prayer, that, that time of prayer each day, those are the ones that won't be thwarted or left behind. Those are the ones that aren't floating downstream. He foresaw that. I share all this today. This homily point could be summed up in a few words. Buckle up and speak up. Buckle up and speak up. Christians, you have a job. The context of Ezekiel, our first reading, you must be a watchman to the house of Israel. The house of Israel, now in New Testament times, is a church, and this is true. And so there's a way that Ezekiel, as the prophet, is supposed to be a watchman to all those in the church. And so there's, there's a convicting thing to priests and bishops in that. But it's also true that you Christians are supposed to be meant to be watchmen for the whole world. To speak in ways that I possibly can't, can't possibly speak. To bring the gospel message to people that I will never meet. Ezekiel was prophesying in exile. The whole country of Israel was in shambles because they hadn't been faithful. And so God allowed the purifying action of Babylon. But there's a way that you and I, Christians, you have a job to be a watchman for the world, to take Christ where I can't possibly go. It's not the job of priests. It's the job of the laity to sanctify the world. It's the job of priests to serve in every way possible the laity. That's the vision of the church. God has appointed each one of you here today for a time like now. And what are you to speak, you might say? I think now more than ever, I call, I've been calling it privately an alternative narrative. The narrative we're hearing, if you listen closely, the first thing, it's full of fear. Fear of what? Fear of death. Well, hello, 100% of you are going to die someday. The, the gift of corona, in a sense, if you could call it a gift, is that we're, we can't distract ourselves anymore from the fact that we all die. It's unmasked that truth, and so we are seeing more than ever the fear of death in so many. But Christians, your message is death is not to be a fear, because Christ has overcome the grave. Death, where is your sting? It's been swallowed up in the resurrection of Christ. Death is simply a passing over. And so you proclaim that message, Christians, that there's no fear of death and there's no fear of suffering either. And suffering, next part of the alternative narrative, suffering is not meaningless. Christ has redeemed suffering. Bring that message to the world. If you listen to so much of the news and listen critically, how much of it is motivated by a fear that we might all get the virus? The third part of your proclamation of an alternative narrative, pandemics are part of world history and they always have been. God is still working. He hasn't stopped and he hasn't abandoned us. And he will bring something good in our hearts and our minds and our whole call. He can bring, that's the power of God is that he can do more with the pandemic than any other creature possibly can. And if you listen again closely, so much of the motive of so many of the, the things that you're hearing or the, the, the underlying principle, we're going to control this pandemic as if we were gods. Listen closely to some of those antics or the semantics rather. And the alternative narrative is we do what we're supposed to do. We take precautions. We're prudent and just in trying to slow the spread of the virus. This is true. But we're not afraid. We're not surprised. And we don't pretend like we're gods that are going to master it all. And if we all just do every little thing we're supposed to, it's going to just go away on its own. It'll run its course. We're prudent. But we expect that because we know that's how it goes. Another part of the alternative narrative. The world is fallen and a mess. And friends, it's not going to change on Wednesday, November 4th. It's going to keep being a mess. 
Because that's what a world without God looks like. Did you know there have been more deaths caused by wars started by ideological atheistic communism, secular, in the last 100 years in all the wars in world history combined? It's an ideology that doesn't bring life. The world is messy. This is part of the alternative narrative. A world without God will always be a more violent world. A world without Jesus Christ will always be a more uncivilized world. It's Christ when we bring the sword to our own hearts and help others do the same, cutting out sin. Then will there truly be the most peaceful and just society. That's the alternative narrative. That's the good news, and that's how we have hope. And friends, the last part of it. Your citizenship is in heaven. As much as you and I love this country, and it's true, we all do, your citizenship isn't here. Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await our Savior, Christ Jesus our Lord. That's why we have hope, because we know ultimately we don't belong here. Ultimately, we're going somewhere else. There's a future day that far outweighs any suffering that we're going to experience now, and to proclaim the good news of a relationship with Jesus Christ. Friends, when the world is more against Christianity, The beauty and the goodness of Christianity shines more brightly. That's why Fulton Sheen was excited to live in a time like now. Because the good news, swimming against the current, yes, it means you're going to stand out and be persecuted. It also means you have greater opportunity to proclaim what it's like to be a friend of the Lord Jesus and operate by the Holy Spirit. So the message won't end anytime soon. Don't be fooled. Don't expect it to, and then we're not going to be fooled. But again, our citizenship is in heaven. Last thing, action items for this week. I I made a bunch of photocopies of um, a little form or a little sheet of paper on the formation of our consciences. I've been talking the last two Sundays about how St. Peter and the office of the Pope is a gift that we absolutely need so our hearts and minds can know the truth and that the formation of our conscience depends on yielding to the teaching of the church as it comes through the healthier part of the priests and bishops. We can't do it without that. And then in order to have a well-formed conscience, That's the gift that God has given us. And so I have a little handout for you to take on the way out. I know we're not supposed to technically do handouts, but um, it's just one sheet of paper with uh, some principles on forming our consciences, not only for a voting booth, but for life. And then secondly, as I mentioned last Sunday, continue to read Romans 12 through 15. In the first 12 chapters, or 11 chapters up to chapter 12, St. Paul is talking about the things that we believe as Christians. And in 12 through 15, he's talking about, well, here's how to live. Ponder those. Pray with that. Let it be fodder for your prayer this week to encourage you and to give you hope. Remember, St. Paul was writing to Romans who were on the cusp of one of the bloodiest persecutions still to to this day ever seen under the Emperor Nero in the years 62 and 63 AD. He got it. They got it. But they were ready because they knew the love of the Lord Jesus Christ. So friends, today, buckle up and speak up. Thus says the Lord, I have appointed you watchmen for the house of Israel.